Let's go to a prolific British conservationist and broadcaster. No, not Sir David Attenborough, although he is often thought as his successor. Chris Packham began his broadcasting career on The Really Wild Show in the 1980s. More recently, he's presented Springwatch for the BBC. Now, he's also a campaigner, recently taking the UK government to court over its plan to water down carbon commitments. So the legal challenge then, what prompted him as a broadcaster and presenter to do it? The UK government put together a, 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 a strategy aiming towards net zero, uh, a very broad strategy encompassing many areas of being able to reduce, if you like, and in simple terms, the UK's carbon footprint and setting certain time periods in order for that to happen. And it was a very considered process. Enormous numbers of people were involved. Um, the, the government's climate change committee were clearly instrumental. Uh, Chris Skidmore, MP, uh, worked extremely hard to to bring this together. So it was a a meaningful piece of legislation. It was then scrutinised by Parliament and put out for public consultation. And it was signed off some time ago as a piece of law, uh, uh, a climate change act. Now, recently, because of, you know, political shenanigans and manoeuvrings here in the UK, our Prime Minister was moved to renege on some of those promises and also some of the time uh, spans that were involved. Now, he wasn't in a position really to do that without again going to the Climate Change Committee, going to Parliament and going to, you know, for public consultation. And it appeared to us that his decision was made on the spur of a moment in reaction to other political things that were happening. And the things that were essentially pulled from that strategy, or at least impeded, were a transition uh, away from cars that were running on fossil fuels towards electric vehicles. Um, They were to do with gas boilers. And so both of those things are, are, are quantifiable. We know how many cars there are. We know how many gas boilers there are. We know how much it would cost. We know what the benefits would be. Other aspects of, of, of the Climate Change Act are, are less reliable. And it, and it appears that, that the decision to renege on those targets and withdraw those uh, pledges was not based on, you know, something else being drafted to, to meet those targets elsewhere. Um, so... In, in the UK, as a citizen of the UK, I am able to uh, challenge this. I can be protected to some extent by uh, a piece of legislation called the Aarhus Convention, which means that my costs can be capped, which therefore means that I can afford to take this case. Um, I can crowdfund it, as I have done. We got the money that we needed for the inaugural part of the case in in just three days. The, poli- the, the decision for the Prime Minister to, to rein back on these things was very unpopular. Um, uh, and that's it. So, you know, citizens like myself, it doesn't matter who you are, what you are, you know, do you just have to be over 18 and a UK citizen have the capacity to do this. Of course, you need to have the financial backing, but equally... Um, you will your cost will be capped. So if I lose the case, there will be a limited amount of money that the government legal department can reclaim from me. And the purpose of that legislation is is pretty simple. It's to make sure that every citizen has the right to justice and information. And although the UK is not the, you know, the, you know, doesn't have the most complete adhesion to the Aarhus Convention, some other countries in Europe have uh, stricter conditions which uh, bodies such as the government have to follow. It, it nevertheless is, is valid here and it's a very useful tool when it comes to holding people like this to account. Mm. 
What about the BBC, who you do much of your work with? People will remember that Gary Lineker got into uh, some somewhat hot water quite recently when he was speaking out uh, and essentially going down the line of, of his political views being known. Mm-hmm. How does that relationship work with the BBC? How complex is that? And could this jeopardise your work with them in the future? Well, I'm not an employee of the BBC. I'm hired on the basis of my, and forgive me, I'm not being arrogant, but expertise. And and I am a a broadcaster that works within principally natural sciences, science and environment. Um, And and I work only on those programmes, as Gary Lineker uh, Mm. works on sports programmes. You you don't see him popping up on my my programmes nor on, you know, cooking or gardening. So the BBC has a long tradition of employing people with an expertise who speak from the heart and with authority about their subject. And that's one of the principal reasons, I think, that it has such a strong legacy of documentary um, uh, programming. It comes with complete integrity. Um, I don't work for the BBC all of the time. As I say, I'm not Mm. an employee. I'm I'm also not involved in any, you know, political programmes and my profile is not deemed as high as Gary Lineker's and indeed it isn't for for obvious reasons. Um, I have a set of, uh, what should we say, unwritten, you know, uh, agreements with the BBC. I'm very polite in my uh, interactions with anyone if I'm, you know, expressing my views on social media. I don't target individuals. Um, I don't do any party politics at all. Um, You know, I'm interested in the environment and protecting that environment. And of course, this is a a political matter, but it's centred around the environment. So I maintain a a decent conduct and I communicate completely with the BBC and tell them what I'm doing and what Mm. I intend to do. And and that relationship on that account is, is, you know, currently harmonious, thankfully. I was reading about some of the charities that you are involved in or have been involved with, Raptor Rescue being one of them. And it would appear that some of your views that you have been stating and speaking out in favour of wildlife has not just annoyed some charities you're involved with, but some charities you're not involved with too. Mm. Well, the Raptor Rescue thing was an interesting case in part. I was invited to join that uh, charity. I have a long-standing interest in birds of prey and raptors um, way back in the 1980s. And the gentleman who essentially recruited me to a patron uh, of that ch- charity um, uh, very sadly disappeared a, a, a long time ago. Um, they are a very small charity with a £10,000 turnover, which means they're essentially inactive. And the story that ran off the back of them essentially sacking me as a patron was unquestionably uh, a piece of mischief that generated by those people who have opposing views to mine when it comes to field sports um, and maybe some uh, irregularities in in, in shooting, uh, the continued use of lead shot, the illegal persecution of of raptors and the the huge numbers of non-native birds which are introduced into our countryside, causing enormous ecological damage um, every year. So those sorts of uh, stories run in, in, in certain newspapers at the behest of either the newspaper or those people who are trying to undermine my credibility and integrity. But I can assure you that I remain a patron and an honorary president, vice president, etc., of a great many environmental charities in the UK. In fact, I've, I've been in, just been invited to um, to add my name as an ambassador and as a patron to two others, one of whom are, are interested in the protection and conservation of raptors. So it's part and parcel of my life that 
you know, if you ask people to change their minds more quickly than they're willing to do so, then some of that fraternity, a minority, I'm pleased to say, of that fraternity, um, you know, resist that by uh, lashing out and, and, and essentially making a nuisance of themselves. And, and in the current age, that means, you know, torrents of hate on social media mm. uh, and, and other mischief, as I've mentioned. But look, it's, it's part and parcel of what we expect in the contemporary age. I, I, I base my... Um, my request and my ideas for transition on good sound science. I, I expect some pushback. It's unfortunate when it's violent or unpleasant and, and we have to involve the police um, to, to investigate those things. But um, it, it's part of a process of progress and I just have to stick with it. Nonetheless, though, that polarisation is perhaps key here. You get death threats. At times you have to use bodyguards. There was an explosion outside your house not that long ago. How do you deal with that kind of level of person who clearly is wanting to do you harm? Well, yes, it's, 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 uh, it's rather strange, isn't it, really, that someone who is basically at, the, at their core campaigning for improvements to the environment for both people and wildlife and the future of our planet should attract such animosity and, and aggression. Uh, it's, it's odd, um, but it's been going on for some time that myself, my partner, my stepdaughter have essentially, I suppose, learned to live with it. Um, we have been advised on how to better look after ourselves, and we've obviously taken that advice very seriously. But at the end of the day, I'm very fortunate to have a, a small voice to be able to speak out, um, a trusted voice, um, because I do speak from the heart and 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 utilising the authority that I I get through essentially working with scientists on on many uh, occasions for many of my campaigns. Um, so there isn't ambiguity about the truth as I and most people see it. Um, but as I say, I'm, I'm asking people to change their minds more quickly than they are willing or able to. And therefore, that is is expected. The polarisation is 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 very um, essentially disruptive. It would be so much better if all of the parties involved in these sorts of debates could sit down and, and thrash out an agreement over the table through civilised and creative con uh, conversation. But we live in a very polarised world. We see that happening all the time now. It is an unfortunate artefact and it certainly slows progress. And it's very, you know, uh, I suppose, uh, disappointing from both sides. Um, but I can assure you that behind the scenes, we do have meetings and we do our best to talk. But there are that tiny fraction that would like to see things, um, you know, as I say, it's all wound up into this sort, sort of frenzy. But ultimately, what, 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 what can I do? I, you know, I, I, I'm 62 years old. I've seen catastrophic declines of wildlife in my lifetime. Since 1970, globally, a 69% uh, decline. In the UK, we've lost 90 million of birds since you know, 1970, and I've been witness to that. My generation of environmentalists and, and conservationists has essentially failed to protect the things that we love most. We have a toolkit and the abilities to restore, reinstate, repair, reintroduce. We can fix it, but we're not doing it broadly enough and rapidly enough. And, and I'm 62, I'm running out of time. I, I've got to up my game and make sure that that, that toolkit is being utilised as rapidly as possible. Just briefly to touch on the on this, um, you made a table out of the charred wood following that explosion outside your house. Why did you decide to do that? 
Well, I'm an old punk rocker, um, and we used to say back in the mid-70s that anger was an energy, but I very long ago learned to turn any anger into something positive, and I'm always exploring that opportunity. You know, and, and when the uh, the gates, essentially, of my property were incinerated in that arson attack, um, I looked at it and I thought, well, OK, I'm going to work twice as hard now to push back against the people that did that. So that was a fallacious move on their part. And I, and I have been doing that. Um, and and that may sound vindictive, but I've not done it in a vindictive way. I've simply set my alarm clock 15 minutes earlier and, and, and done more of what I was uh, doing to pursue that those changes that are required when it comes to looking after our wildlife properly in the in the UK countryside. And then I looked at the fabric and it was actually very beautiful, the burned wood. And I thought, OK, I, I've got to make something good out of this. I've got to turn it into something creative. So um, we very carefully disassembled the gates and we cut them and made them into um, three tables. They're set in resin. The burned wood is very beautiful. It glimmers uh, with an iridescent sheen. Um, and I, I'm about to auction one of those to raise money for charity, and I'll give the money to those charities who are pursuing the same cause as me. The gate posts, uh, which are large oak gate posts, um, we had to take those down as well. Unfortunately, they were damaged, and I, I've had those carved and turned into benches in the garden. One of them has foxes' heads at e each end, and so. For me, it's part and parcel of making good out of something which was obviously bad. And that's 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 principally sort of, you know, explains my outlook when it comes to these sorts of things. You know, I am a very angry man, but mm. I t I, you won't see me screaming and shouting. You will see me asking politely um, and trying to do things in a creative and imaginative way. Do you think society um, has a, has kind of got the wrong end of the stick when it comes to anger? Because anger is often seen as a negative thing but actually it's just an emotion it's neither inherently good nor bad it's motivating just as fear is i think that we certainly have become very frightened of fear we do everything we can to sometimes not tell people the truth because we feel that they will be incapacitated by it or demoralized or disenfranchised by it um but fear as with anger as you point out is a natural emotion um primal fear in in our species instigates fight or flight so when it comes to looking after the planet there's you know despite musk and bezos's ambitions there is nowhere to fly to and therefore we must fight to protect it and so i think a little bit of fear when i when i, when I see this week you know california underwater raging torrents tearing apart that city um which has previously been exposed to you know uh, very severe droughts so we're looking at those extreme uh, you know weather events as an artifact of of, of climate uh, breakdown impacting on that city um, I'm, I'm i'm scared and you know that that could be happening to us next week next year at some point and and that fear therefore motivates me to want to do something about it and 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 I accept and embrace that. But I, you've got to do, turn it, you know, I, being frightened. I don't want to hide in a cupboard. I, I, I've got to, you know, to, to, to use that in a positive way as I, as I do energy. So, yeah, I think, you know, there is nothing wrong with being. I'm not ashamed to say that I'm an angry man. I have just reasons to be angry about all sorts of things, which I see as, um, you know, unjust when it comes to the way that we look after you know, our, our natural world. Why wouldn't I be angry? I've already said, you know, we've lost 69% of the world's wildlife. The thing that I probably love most has gone in my lifetime. I'm more angry with myself than anything else, to be honest with you, because I, I am, and, and others of my age should have been working harder. 
You've talked about conservationism failing. Is it too late? No, it's not too late. I mean, I think that we are into seeing some very significant changes and, and we know that, but that doesn't mean it's too late. Um, whilst we have charted those declines in our biodiversity and changes in distribution, so on and so forth, we have also tried and tested an enormous portfolio of abilities to uh, address these issues. Um, and some of the bigger picture issues, we know that we have to transition away from a dependence on fossil fuels towards renewables. We know that we have to transition to a more plant-based diet in order to be able to feed the world properly. Uh, we have a lot of answers to some of the very you know, most important problems. We are simply not doing it. And, and that is what is frustrating. If I thought that we didn't have enough answers and all was lost, I'd be drunk in a gutter, I imagine. But I, I'm not. I'm very confident that if we were acting properly and more rapidly with more public and political support, we would be in a position whereby our future would be healthier. No, it wouldn't be the same. I'm not telling you that we're going to save everything and we're going to be living as we are now at any point in, in even the very near future. But there were, it would be a lot more a, a lot more comfortable a transition for us if we just got on, got on with it. Mm. When did you come to the realisation that conservationism was doing little more than tinkering around the edges, in your words? I think that, you know, I, I mean, there are a lot of conservation projects which I, I continue to support, and they are not projects which are essentially, and forgive the, you know, the, the sort of trite paraphrase, save the world. Um, but they play a role in reaffirming people's confidence. They empower people. They they continue to uh, to remind people that we are able to make uh, those positive differences. Sometimes on very small scale. Sometimes as individuals or communities, and sometimes over small areas. But you know, people need to be reminded when they're feeling disempowered, thinking that they're just a drop in the ocean. That the ocean is nothing more than a multitude of drops, and we can all play a meaningful role in making a meaningful difference. Um, and, and there were a plethora of ways to do that. In terms of answering your question more directly, I suppose, I don't know, maybe 25, 30 years ago, I became very concerned about our obsession at that point with what I called single species conservation. We would throw you know, huge amounts of money at literally one species, perhaps, um, when we, we we really should have learned by then that we should be looking after you know, ecosystems, habitats, landscapes, um, but conservation is a, you know, is uh, is a, a field which has been very slow to reform. And at the moment, it's 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 certainly here in the UK, it's relatively timid, and that's come at the the most, you know, difficult time. I, I I wish that conservation showed more fortitude and strength. It has that strength. It has that energy. It has enormous public support and following. Uh, but those that are essentially, you know, running it. Are, are risk averse um, and, and they're a bit too timid. I'm, I'm constantly trying to shake them up. That's what's happening behind closed doors all the time. You know, I, my job is is to is to say, look, we need action and we need action now. You need to play your a very valuable part in that, proactive part in that. Let's get on with it. Um, but you know, even goading those people into action could be quite hard work. I'm afraid. What do you make of? some of the more recent, um, I suppose, waves, if you like, of more radical, disruptive process. I suppose I'm thinking of things like people gluing themselves to the road or uh, people targeting artistic masterpieces. Does that help? Mm. It, it, it can do. Uh, I mean, 
their mission um, is, is, is to get you know, an issue which they see as as extremely important in the news. And, and you will know it's really hard to get new space now. There are so many issues, local and global, which will dominate news, whilst, you know, the very big and important things sometimes tend to get forgotten. And, and what they're trying to do is to make sure that they are not forgotten. Um, I think that there are several things we need to consider when we are thinking about those types of protests um, and before we judge them. Firstly, what is the motive? What motivates those people to, you know, to, 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 to take those sorts of acts of protest? Some of them are very young. Some of them are very old. They're imperiling aspects of their lives. They know that they could be arrested and imprisoned. And the, the protest laws in the UK have been have been tightened uh, to the extent um, that they're now very uh, obstructive. And we have the UN complaining to the, U the UK government uh, that they're, you know, draconian in some ways. The second thing after motive, and, and I think most of us would sympathise with the motives. These are people who are frightened for their and our future. I think that's a fair motive. The second thing is the method. What are they actually doing? You mentioned gluing themselves to roads and throwing soup over painting, so on and so forth. The method, the method could be justified if it's peaceful, non-violent, and in the case of throwing soup over paintings, uh, not going to permanently damage them, if the critical third M is realised, and that is that they get their message across. And the message for most of the, those people, uh, the likes of Just Stop Oil and formerly Extinction Rebellion, is that we want a just and rapid transition away from fossil fuels. Where those protests, I would argue, fail is that the motive is clear and they pursue their methods, but they don't get their message across. Because when it's reported, it's reported as an act of vandalism on a painting or disruption to everyday public. And the media fails to deliver the message. And on that account, I think it invalidates that as an effective form of protest. So what do they need to do? Think more creatively, think more imaginatively, find other ways of communicating, um, which, which, you know, where they can get that message across. And that's, again, something that myself and my campaigning partner, Emma, are constantly in dialogue with the protest movement saying, you know, what can we do next that's that's going to capture public attention in a way which will be positive and not be manipulated by the right wing press into something which is extraordinarily negative? This is the difficulty, I guess, that messaging. And it's something that a lot of areas of the media are coming up against, which is this, you know, how how possible is it to be honest about, for example, the climate crisis without being so depressing that people simply switch off their radios or their TVs? Well, it, it could be, if it was presented in that way, a situation that was hopeless, but it, it isn't hopeless, is it? As I said, I've outlined a couple of things which we, where we know, all of us in our hearts know, that we've, we've got to pursue, uh, and that is that just transition away from fossil fuels towards renewables that I've repeated several times, and, and also a, a move towards plant-based. And these are things that we can all actively play a role in as and when the opportunities present themselves to us. Um, I think that sometimes the media, when it comes to communicating those sorts of things, has the capacity to, you know, disenfranchise uh, people. But that's that's in its presentation. If you present something as a problem, it becomes difficult for people. If you present it as an opportunity, it's something they're more likely to embrace. And many of the changes that we need to make, I see very clearly as opportunities. I mean, look, there's a, an enormous you know, area of, uh, of growth within industry and manufacturing and research and development in renewables. And, and that's something that we should be investing in, not 
plowing on with the sunset industry, bad business as usual, digging coal and oil and gas out of the ground. Um, and that would represent jobs, that is security for people's future, um, and also security for our, our planet's future too. So I don't see that transition as a problem. I actually see it as an opportunity. And I think that the, if the media were to present things in that fashion, people would feel empowered rather than disempowered. But they do need to be told the truth because at the moment we're just sleeping, sleepwalking towards an apocalypse. You're very clear. You're very direct. You've written about having autism. How much of your communication style do you think is rooted in that? I think that, you know, people like myself have a, an aggravated sense of injustice. Our, our world is pretty, you know, much black and white. Things are right or they are wrong. I, I hope that, like myself, we all retain the right to change our minds on that occasionally. But nevertheless, you know, we we feel a compunction to to speak out and and tell the truth as we see it and we tell the truth in in straight talking clear uh language and and i think that probably is an aspect of 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 neurodiversity i meet other people who have uh you know commonality of of of, of traits that that i have and, and and we're pretty much the same you know Greta is a case in part, and there are others. Um, we we need to tell that truth, and we're not intimidated and, and by the thought of it generating conflict. Conflict, if you like, has been, my, I can only speak for myself, but from my point of view, conflict has been part and parcel of my life. I grew up with as an undiagnosed neurodiverse person in the 1960s and 70s, and I had a pretty uncomfortable childhood, teenage and early 20s time. Um, I, I needed to come to terms with that condition without a diagnosis and without being understood and without understanding it myself. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it very definitely plays uh, plays a, a role in that. And, and I think it's a, from my point of view, I see it as one of the positive things. There are negative aspects of being neurodiverse, but there are positive aspects to it, too. And I've been able to utilize some of those positive aspects in my professional life and now in in, in my campaigning life so I, i'm obviously going to draw upon those that's what people like us do we we find those strengths and we we find those things that we're we're good at and we try to focus on those and not the things that we're incapable of doing or those things which disable us and 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 we try to uh, you know therefore make our lives more possible uh, positive and a bit more livable mm. you didn't tell your partner though about it for about five years after you met why was that well I think she'd pretty much figured it out and, and and at that point I was coming to terms with you know I mean I'd been living with the condition and I'd come up with a management strategy which had allowed me to uh, work professionally and that's a social I work in a social uh, situation when I'm working um, I, I you know for a long term I was having to manage myself as well as do the job and that was quite exhausting and then, you know, eventually habit takes over and you some of the things that you're having to constantly remind yourself to do or not do, you, you do habitually and it becomes easier. Um, I, I think that I'd had a number of relationships which, with the benefit of hindsight, had probably failed because of my inability to manage the condition, um, you know, when I was you know in a social situation with a partner where you know you let your guard down. I mean, you, and, and you, you're tired and you're in your own home space. Um, but ultimately that had that had cost cost me and I met someone who I was developing a relationship with that I wanted to endure um, but 
my partner is a very intelligent woman and she you know had been speaking to other women who were living with men who were autistic and she was researching autism um and there were some bumpy moments there still are occasionally and i think most of them are probably down to me but i you know we work together to 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 try and coexist in a way which is positive and and harmonious and i'm very lucky that she's dedicated the energy to doing that what does make it bumpy what are the the sticky moments Oh, I, f- I forget and I'll say something entirely inappropriate or I will have a perspective which is um, not, you know, encompassing the amount of empathy that, you know, might be de- deemed to be a- a- appropriate. Um, I think the black and white nature of things can, can make it quite difficult. Um, I sometimes fail to see the, the, the nuance in, in situations. I'm apt to making judgments quite quickly. Um I, I, I'm not someone who invests in, in a long-term future. I don't generate expectations and therefore I'm not essentially a, a traditionally ambitious person. Um, and I'm, you know, my life's been a bit of a, a, a roller coaster. I don't expect that to change. Um, and maybe sometimes she, she doesn't like it when it, when it dips um, in terms of managing my mental health, because that's been an aspect um, of uh, that, you know, of my life, which has been impacted by the condition. There's no doubt about that. Um, then we speak, I, I think one of the th- areas where I've, I've made progress together, we've made progress is that I speak very openly about that uh, to her. Um, and, um, and, and we manage that together. So I, I think that, you know, that perhaps I, I'm not saying our relationship is a paragon of understanding and, and compliance and, and, and so forth. But I, you know, I, it, I think we do prove that, um, a neurotypical uh, uh, a neuro, a neurodiverse person can uh, live together in a very happy, productive and, for the most part, home, harmonious relationship. I, I see our relationship as being positive. We've been together for quite a long time now, maybe 15 years, um, and we still enjoy each other's company and we still enjoy the challenges that being together presents us with, I think. Well, I'm saying that from my perspective, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> and I'm probably not in the best position to judge it from hers. But but as I've said, you know, I, I'm very, very fortunate that she invested energy in want, you know, wanting to be able to manage the relationship from her part so that it, it, it was functional. Um, and that sometimes is, is what is needed. From a media perspective, you've perhaps had a a career that's been of two halves. Um, I remember growing up in the UK and watching you on The Really Wild Show, uh, which was, uh, how would you describe it? I guess it was like a a wildlife programme, but solely aimed at kids. And then, of course, you have become very well known on the BBC with things like Springwatch more recently. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was a chunk of time where you weren't in I suppose in the media spotlight in the same kind of way how did you cope with that when you'd been so well known by such a large amount of the population and then you sort of disappeared well I I never really wanted to be well known and I you know my ambition from 13 to 23 uh, in a very formative part of my life was to you know to stay in academia, ensconce myself in an ivory tower for the, for, and, and study birds. I, I drifted into, in, into television. So it wasn't, uh, I didn't want to be famous. It was an artifact of, of being on TV. And, and, I, and I ended up doing that because of my irrepressible 
I mean, I'm so, I don't again, don't take this in an arrogant way. I, I'm not bigging myself up here. I'm not Chris Packham's number one fan. Um, but you know, I, I I always wanted to tell people about you know wildlife and 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 express my passion and and curiosity and fascination for the subject. You know, I remember when I first got the job in television, I was talking to my sister about it about going for the the screen test, and she said. Thank goodness for that. You've been boring us for the last 20 years. Now you're going to bore the nation by talking about the insides of tawny owls. You know? And so, you know, it was it, being well, you know, being relatively well known was an artifact of doing something that I felt that I could perhaps do um, and maybe needed to do. I felt the same compulsion to to, you know, try and get people to you know, develop an affinity for life and a love for it so that I, I could then ask them to look after it. Um, and in terms of the sort of the hiatus, um, well, I met Megan, my stepdaughter. She was 18 months old. Um, I wanted to play a very active role in her, uh, you know, bringing her up. Um, and I couldn't do that if I was doing uh, what, what I was at that point doing on the BBC, which involved quite a lot of travel around the world. And I wasn't able to manage my time in, in suitably to, to make that investment. I took the investment very, very seriously. So I cut back on my work. I put together my own production company. So I carried on doing what I was doing. We made programmes for South Africa and in, in South Africa and for North America. It was it was a very successful small uh, you know, uh, production company making natural history programs, and that allowed you know I could then take Megan with me. There was you know, and she did travel uh, the world when I was making those programs, and that was enormously beneficial for her, I hope and and, and think. Um, and then when she got to a, I don't know her sort of mid-teens, I thought, well, okay, I can see if I can go back to doing what I was doing before, and and I was fortunate I had that opportunity. So I carried on doing what I was doing. I just didn't, as you pointed out, didn't quite have the same. Uh, you know, sort of time spent in the media spotlight, as it were. But that was about investing in Megan, and 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 she's gone on to present Spring Watch with me and Winter Watch and Autumn Watch. Um, that wasn't an aspiration of mine. It wasn't something that I'd hoped for her or even tried to shape for her in any way, shape, or form. Actually, but um, but it, it, it obviously it, it it paid off. That investment paid off. She loves life as much as I do, and she's determined to protect it too. Why are you not Chris Packham's number one fan? Um, I, 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 I've never, I, I don't, I, I'm very self-critical. I think that that's important. Um, I, I'm not satisfied by things that I do. I always see that they could be done better. Um, that's part of that. I think that's healthy in, in, in many ways, because it, it means that my life is a learning process. It's about progress. Um, I think that if I liked what I did um, and, and what I do and who I am, I'd probably become a bit flabby and complacent and content and comfortable. And I prefer a struggle. Um, and I have, I suppose I, I grew to be a quite an introspective person because for an early part in the early part of my life, I was trying to understand my, my autism. I didn't understand that. And I had to, you know, put myself under a microscope continuously to try and figure out why I was different than other people and why, they were behaving in in one way, and I wanted to behave in another, etc. Um, so no, I'm not I'm not a great fan of Chris Packham. Chris Packham needs to work harder and achieve more, more quickly, and more efficiently, more optimally. And I'll continue to work towards that. So I mean, I I enjoy criticism more than flattery. There's no question of that. I find that more a more useful um, thing to embrace. 
Let's speak about the flattery then, I suppose. Not that I'm intentionally trying to make you feel awkward, but people do compare you to David Attenborough. What do you make of well, that comparison? Do you think it's a lazy one? Well, so David is, the, from my perspective, and I'm bound to be biased here, but I, I would argue that he's the greatest broadcaster that we've ever had. And the, the, certainly the greatest ambassador for life on Earth. There's no question that throughout the 70s, 80s and to this point, you know, his legacy, his catalogue of programmes have reached millions of people around the world. And he has achieved that mission of engendering an affinity for life. You know, he's told his stories and, 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 and given us all of that science, all of that understanding, all of that entertainment as well moving from you know his inaugural programs in black and white to now 3d h d and uh, you know he he's gone through that period the, the media won't be the same again people are communicating using short form social media now people get news um, often unfortunately from from tiktok um and david attenborough could not have grown his career on a platform such as tiktok um but you know we have to remember that you know, he's the he's the master, basically. So being compared to someone like that is obviously uncomfortable for me. I we get on extremely well, um, you know, and uh, but we recognise and 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 so should everyone else that we've come from different ages, and and therefore our attitude, our outlook is motivated by the same thing. You know, we, you know, we come out of the same pod when it comes to a passion for life and a desire to understand it and communicate. You know what we learn to other people. But we will do so in different ways because, you know, our missions are, are, are different. Having said that, of course, um, David has been very outspoken in, in recent years. He's had the opportunity to speak to leaders of industry and, and leaders of the world about his grave concerns about our planet's future. And he again, he does so from a platform of enormous authority um, I wish they'd listen to him more intently and act more upon the things that he'd, he he had told them. But, you know, we we both have our methods and, and, and we pursue them. And, you know, I saw him before Christmas. He was in uh, good form. And long may that continue. I, I suppose it's interesting that with someone of, as you say, his his career and what he has achieved and... He really is a, you know, he's not just a titan of broadcasting, as you say. He is a, he is a titan of of bringing the natural world to people's attention. Why don't you think people no. listen to him, nonetheless? Well, I've asked him that. <laughs> what does he say? Well, he says they do listen. It's just they get up the next day and they've forgotten. And I think that that's probably simplistically it. Um, you know, it's very difficult at the moment. You know, we, we have, uh, by, by ill chance, elected globally and not everywhere, I have to say, but in many places across the world, uh, we've uh, elected decision makers who are not best placed to make the right decisions at this critical time. And they're not going to listen. They have, you know, vested interest in bad business as usual. And therefore, you know, overcoming that is what leads to the protest that we've been speaking about. I mean, if, if it weren't, if there weren't the necessity to protest, I could spend a lot more time eulogising about, you know, the beauty of nature. Um, and so could a lot of other people. But we don't have that choice. 
I think that there will be a point in the pretty near future, actually, where we will re-elect people who do, do share our concerns and understandings when it comes to acting more promptly to protect things. I think that generation of, of politicians and decision makers is there in waiting. But at the moment, our job, David's, mine's, everyone else you know, who is protesting and, and, and trying to protect life, it, it seems to me it's more like triage. We're just trying to keep everything alive until we can really start to take some action. And we, as I said, you know, we've got the tools to take that action. We just need the political will and motivation and public support to do it. And I think it will come quite quickly. And unfortunately, I think it will probably come because we'll be reacting to catastrophe. And when you think about the human species and, and its history, even its recent history, say in the last 100 and 150 years, when we are put under enormous stress as a species, we solve problems. Even, you know, we, we don't prevent the stress from happening. You know, it was pretty obvious if you look at the rallies that were being held in Germany in, in the 1930s that something, you know, horrid was afoot. It, we, we learned um, that, you know, we'd been warned about a pandemic that could sweep across the planet and do us enormous harm, but we didn't put in place the measures to address that. But in recent times, we suffered that pandemic tragically. But within eight, eight months, we'd come up with a vaccine that saved millions of people's lives. We're very good at cure. We're not so good at prevention. But I think that when enough of our species is under stress due to climate breakdown and biodiversity loss, we will act. And we will act very promptly, as we have done on those two previous occasions when, you know, in recent times, our species has been under terrifying stress. With that as the backdrop, whereabouts do you see hope? I, I see hope in young people. I'm, I'm greatly inspired by the clarity of their voices, their knowledge, their determination, um, that, that the fact that they want to seize um, an opportunity to influence their future, that they are prepared to stand up and take risks, which is what we should have been doing for so long. Um, I feel enormously um, inspired by that, by, the, by those young people. And, and hope, of course, is there because of the, as I've said, that portfolio of abilities to make a real difference that we have. If we didn't have that, then I think we'd be in deep trouble because we'd be scrabbling around at the moment, trying to pull together, you know, methods and methodologies of solving the problems. But we, we do have so many of those problems, you know, uh, ready to be solved. And that, you know, what another thing that, you know, my generation, David's generation at the moment, what we're very clear about is that we need to build a firm foundation for those young people to stand on so that they are best placed to facilitate the recovery that we need. It may not happen in my lifetime or in his, but, but it needs to happen in theirs. And my job at the moment is, is very much about empowering those young people, giving them um, you know, the capacity to, to do things, trusting them, not just listening to young people, which is patronising, but trusting them to be part of a decision-making process and, and having the strength of um, character to sit back and, and watch them make mistakes, but also watch them make you know, great steps forward far more quickly than you know, the conservative thinking of the aged would do. So, you know, I would feel more comfortable about the, the future of the planet if it weren't being governed by octogenarians, it would be governed by, by, by much younger people. Let me tell you one fact which will tickle your, your, your listeners. In 1969, when uh, NASA put Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon, the average age of the people working at Cape Canaveral Mission Control mm. was 25. It was 25. <laughs> and... 
you know, because frankly, who else would have lit the blue touch paper under a <laughs> giant firewalk to fire, you know, astronauts to the moon? They did take those risks, but they were competent. They were ambitious. They were energetic. And, you know, and I imagine if we had 25 worlds harboring that responsibility now, I think we'd be in a far better place. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Chris. Um, before you go, tell me about your joy grenades. Uh, my joy grenades. I'm looking at one of them now. Um, Which one are you looking at now? So, Nancy, I have Sid and Nancy at the moment and named after those um, punk rock icons or infamous icons, I, I, I might add. Mm. Um so since 1980, when I was a kid, I grew up, uh, I only had an interest in wild animals. I had no interest at all. In fact, I was a snob when it came to domestic animals. Hamsters, not for me. Rabbits, no. Nope. Dogs, cats, no thank you. It was always badgers and foxes and, and owls and buzzards and, and, and whatever. Um, in 1980, my mother arrived home on one Sunday afternoon and dropped a, a pile of black fluff onto the carpet that grew into uh, a black miniature poodle called Max. And my life was transformed. Um, because unbeknown to me, uh, you know, what I what I needed were, were, was the relationship with those companion animals. And and now we you know, I work with charities which uh, facilitate uh, the provision of autism assistance dogs. And with the benefit of hindsight, that's what my my poodles have been. So I had uh, Max to start with and then um, uh, a fish dog called Fish. And then I had Itchy and Scratchy, uh, my joy grenades, and now I have Sid and Sid and Nancy, and I, uh, I enjoy spending time with them. We go out for walks in the woods by ourselves. I, I, I can just be lifted up, you know, by them running for the sheer joy of running, and you know, and that's something as simple as that. They're, you know, when I slip the lead when it's appropriate for them to be off that lead, and they just run, particularly like on a beach or on a windy day when it's raining, because that really tickles them and gets them going. I can just stand there laughing out loud. I can, I can, I can be made so happy by, by spending time with them, and and they're a complete part of my life. Nancy sleeps in my arms. Sid sleeps by my feet. They wriggle. I wake up. We go back to sleep. I get up. I feed them. I walk them. Um, Charlotte and I love them greatly they're, they're they're extremely important and and i you know and 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 a lot and this is not a unique thing and this is not something which is obviously you know an artifact of being a neurodiverse person enormous numbers of people get an enormous reward mental health securities physical exercise out of the relationships they have with their companion animals it's enormously important to us so i i love them they're the epicenter of my universe